Well, welcome to the Lord's Day. Uh, I, I again want to uh, begin by just saying thank you. Um, my, uh, my last 36 hours have been 24 hours or so, however many hours I've been here. Um, been filled with rich conversation and uh, time for uh, Sabbathing. And, uh, and I, would, uh, I, I would dare say, I believe I have borne witness to the work of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. doing things that are beyond our capacity to imagine. And, uh, but that's how God is, right? Always doing things that would be difficult for us to imagine. Um, so thank you again for um, uh, allowing me to be part of your life for this weekend. So for the last 20 years, um, I have um, every Tuesday morning uh, met with three other men for confession and prayer. And um, we're, we're, we're imperfect at it, but as Leslie Newbigin says about the witness of the, God, of, of the disciples, that just because their witness was imperfect did not mean that it was ineffective. And... Um, uh, we're, we're not perfect at it, but I can tell you that over the course of 20 years, uh, meeting with these three men and allowing them to come and find me, and uh, we come and find each other, uh, has made all the difference in the world in my life. Uh, because I'm uh, a living, breathing example of how um, uh, God does things because uh, we're trying to live according to the way our brains have actually been made, which is like my brain, uh, like my mind is not just my own, right? It belongs, like, let us make mankind in our image. Right? And um, in addition to that, um, for the last 20 years, I uh, have met, for the, on the most part, pretty much once a month um, uh, with a guy named David Harper. He's a now retired Anglican priest, um, once a month as my spiritual director. And um, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, my father died when I was 17, and, and David has most certainly been uh, the father that I have not had as an adult. And David has also been someone who has repeatedly come to find me. And I remember in uh, one, one particular day, this is probably now, I don't know, eight to 10 years ago, I've, I've completely lost track of the time. And, um, uh, you know, it was, it was at a time after I had been uh, meeting with David for a number of years. And, you know, after you're with somebody for, for a period of time, you're not always sure how much of your story they know and that they don't know. You just kind of figure that there's a lot that they know, even if you haven't told them. Like, because you, they know so much, the, the, the lines blur between what I know that they know and what they apparently don't. And one day, um, I, I don't even remember what the topic was that, um, uh, that started the whole conversation. But um, it, it, it led me to saying something about, um, it, it had something to do with my family, my family heritage. And I said, well, then, and you know, that about the story about my mom. And I started to, I just started to do this litany about my mother's story. And I said, well, my mom, who, you know, she was essentially functionally orphaned uh, at three because her mother died from an ectopic pregnancy. And her father didn't really know what to do with her four kids. And so he kind of farmed them out. And my mother became kind of like a functional orphan going from family to family to family. 
growing up in Ohio. And I said then, you know, her oldest brother, you know, he grew up and when she was a young, you know, when, when she was a young adult, my mom, like her oldest brother, hanged himself and he was found by his son who then grew up and he hanged himself and he was found by his son. And um, then, you know, my mom, you know, she had, she was chopped from family to family and then the family that she finally land, landed with who really loved her the most, the aunt who was taking care of her would in the middle of the night be taken away on numerous occasions to be the, you know, hospitalized psychiatrically because she had bipolar disorder. My mom would wake up and to find that her aunt was gone and not know where she was going. You talk, like talk louder? I'll talk louder. <laughs> and you know, do you ever have those, do you ever have those moments where you're talking to someone and uh, you're telling them things that just seem routine to you? And there's a look that starts to come over them in which they're looking at you rather aghast. And you then don't know why they're looking at you the way they're looking at you, right? And you're like, what? Right? One of those moments. And you see, I think I, was, I, I felt so well known by him that as I am walking through this litany of people leaving, uh, I just figured David knew this. And as it turned out, he had not known it. In the middle of my talking, he stands up and takes two strides across the room. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he looks at me and says, there has been so much loss. And I just broke. And I didn't even know what was happening. I wasn't aware of what I wasn't aware of until it was heard by somebody else who was hearing it that much more closely. What shame wants to do, what evil wants to do, is to have us telling our stories in such a way that even the brokenness seems routine. The brokenness even now is so tightly wound to our automatic narrative that it's been completely cut off from any sense of emotional state that would register it even to our own selves as being significant. And if it's not registering to me, I'm certainly not going to bring it to Jesus. And it is not until someone else comes to find it that we discover that Jesus has been in the middle of it from the beginning. We've covered the first and second stories so far. This first story, one of God's creation with intention and joy and delight and His hope that this would be a world of vulnerable creativity in the absence of shame. And then we've seen what happens when that doesn't take place. We've seen how systematized it can become, how endemic it becomes. And in the course of all that, we forget something that we're going to come back to at the end of our time today. We forget that in the middle of Genesis 1 and 2, there's day 7. In the middle of Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2, there's day 7, and God rests. 
And you know, in John 9, Jesus got in trouble with this blind guy primarily because not he, that he healed him, but that he healed him on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a problem for us because everything that was made to be so good in Genesis 1 and 2, especially day 7, the more important it is, the more that when shame enters the picture, it is run aground and then gets misused by us in all kinds of ways. Echoes of that first story still show up for us. Hopes for joyful relationships. Hopes for vocational callings of all sorts in which we are creating as we were created to create. But shame and evil want to do a very, very nasty turn on that, as we saw last night. But then we get to today's story. The third story, which I'm just saying it's the first and second stories remixed. Now, this third story is in John 21 that you have in your handout. And um, we're just going to walk through the story. And so we see that in John 21, uh, we see at the, at the opening parts of it that the disciples go off to fish again. Now, it's, you know, it's interesting to me that um, uh, these, are, these are guys that have been hanging out with Jesus all the time. Right? They left their nets. They left their boats to go follow Jesus for three years. And now they go back to their boats. Which is like, it's, like, it's, it's kind of odd to me. Like, like the dude is back, right? Jesus is back. But I'm not quite sure like, why now they're fishing. Like, why aren't they like, hanging out with him all the time? Well, I just want to suggest like, it is so like Jesus. right? Because apparently, Jesus is not making himself available in the same way. They've had an encounter with Jesus that was life-changing, and then Jesus seems to do this, like, disappearing act, right? He's in the room, and then he's gone. And then he's in the room, and then he's gone. Like, I don't like this Jesus, right? I like the Jesus who's with me all the time. You with me? And I want to suggest that part of his coming and going is not unlike what happens when a parent teaches a child in the parents coming and going to grow up. That the parent is teaching the child to expand, is forcing the mind to work, forcing us to grow. And so these disciples go back to what they know. It's like us, right? They were on to something. We're not sure that that something is really going to be what we thought it was going to be. And so we go back to what we are good at. And here's the thing. They're not, like, like fishing is a good thing. Fishing is a good thing. But I want to suggest, that, like, remember, the Gospel of John is written, he's not just writing, uh, like, a historical account. He's writing as a great storyteller. He's writing so that you may believe. Right? And he tells this story, like, they go out and they fish, they're really good. But since Jesus has come and been crucified and been raised from the dead, even their old thing that they were good at just isn't the same anymore. They go out, they can't catch Jack. Right? Nothing. All night. Zip. It's like me. Right? I have an encounter with Jesus, and then I go back to the same thing. Right? I go back to my same patterns. You see, we're going to go home, we're going to leave this place, and we're going to go back to life and work. And there are going to be all kinds of things that are going to be battering at our door that are going to want us to have to just go back the same way things were before we were here 
this weekend. This is what evil will do. And not only that, like, remember, they were good at fishing. The things that we're going back to, like, no, like, it's not like tomorrow at 3 o'clock, evil's going to show up at your door and say, like, hey, let's go rob a bank. Right? As we saw, like, evil does its best work in the middle of good work being done. It's going to have you do something that's really, really good and then have you worry that you're not doing it well enough. And then Jesus does one of these, like, reappearing acts again. And he shows up. And he's on the beach and he's making breakfast. And like, like, like the best meal of the day, right? The most important meal of the day. And he's cooking breakfast. But they don't recognize this at first. But then, like, the disciple that Jesus loved, right? It says, it says it's the Lord. Now, I got just a word about this. You know, I'm the guy in the room. So, like, because, I, like, I think Duke is cool. Okay? I don't know what you think. I don't care what you think, right? <laughs> I, think, I think Duke is cool. But because he's the leader, like, so if, I'm, if, I, go to a, if I go to some place and, like, Duke is there. I don't just want to be one of Duke's friends. I want to be Duke's best friend. <laughs> like, I, like you, you know what I mean? Like, like, I don't want to be Andrew, the disciple. No. No, no, no. I want to be the disciple that Jesus loved. Right? Like, and he's like, he's like, it's all the best life. It's the Lord. It's the Lord, right? So this is part of what, you know, I, I'm already, like, in, in this narrative, like, I don't, I, don't, I want to be that guy. It's not enough for me to be, like, just one of the disciples. Professional sinner, right? Just remember. And Peter sees, and he jumps into the water, and he swims to shore. And he shows up. And there is a meal prepared. And Jesus welcomes him to breakfast. And in addition, Jesus has said, hey, throw your nets down on the other side. And they're like, hey, you're a carpenter. You don't know anything about fishing. But they do. And they bring in a haul. <clears throat> and like, what is it? Like, they, they, it was like, and there was a lot of fish. No, it's 153 fish. Right? They, they counted them like, that fast. 153 fish. <laughs> but you notice, their nets don't tear. And that's not tear. Back in Luke 5, where there's a story where Jesus tells Peter, launch out into the deep. And they do. And they take in such a hole that their nets start to tear. And we want to say, the resurrection means our nets don't tear. Like John is telling us something. Like John is like really trying to make us work to pay attention to what he's telling us. Our nets don't tear in the wake of of the resurrection. But that's not all. Here's something else that begins to happen. They're all gathered around, and they're about to have breakfast. And it is around a meal cooked on a fire that the trouble starts. Yes? We've talked here, we've mentioned this thing called implicit memory. Right? This uh, idea that, like, you know, if the guy has a fight with his wife after work, and he, in the middle of the fight, he gets in his car and takes off because he's just mad. And you ask him later, like, why did you do that? And he would say, well, I know how she gets, you know, and I don't want it to get too far. Or he might say, I know how I get, and if I go too far, like, I don't want to say something that I'm going to regret, so I get in my car as a way to, like, blow off steam. What he might not say is, 
I think I was having an implicit memory of what it was like when I was 10 years old. And my father, who was an alcoholic, decided that he was going to get sober. And instead of coming home drunk, he just came home angry. And the only way I knew how to cope was to get on my bike and ride. You see, implicit memory is running like 90% of our lives. You're going to have to remember, for instance, you're going to have to remember how to walk out of the room. That's an implicit memory. Right? But multiple ways of how we respond to each other are not just like relational actions. They are things we are doing to remember out of our stories that are far more ancient. And Jesus has no intention of leaving us there. And so for Peter, we have a fire. Remember a fire the last time Peter had some encounter in Jesus' presence as far as we know? Right? The night that like he really goes big. Right? Not just once, not just twice. Like he home runs like three times in a game. It's awesome. Right? There's a fire. There's food. And then Jesus begins this inquisition. Remember this? Oh, we remember. I don't know if Jesus asked him three times or 33 times. I don't know. John's pretty clear that he's going to talk about three times because there were those three times. He first asks him, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? And the NRSV, I mean, the New American Standard says, uh, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time do you love him? Other versions, the NIV, the NRSV said, and Peter was hurt. I gotta tell you, like, the word grieved is a far more viscerally felt word to me than just like, well, he was hurt. Peter was grieved, and here's, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, like, look, like, tactically, you, you can see what Jesus is doing. Like, if I'm Peter, I'm like, like, dude, like, if we want to have this conversation, couldn't it be just like in the privacy of, of your consultation room? In which you just say to me, like, hey, that thing that happened six weeks ago between you and me? We're good, right? Wouldn't it have been enough? Like, if we're really okay, can't you just tell me that privately? Why is it that in front of everybody else, you're going to haul my crap out on the table? You see, because if I'm Peter, and Jesus is asking me this, my grief is not just that Jesus asked me, my grief is because I know for sure that I don't love you yet. Because if I did, I wouldn't have done what I did six weeks ago. Are you with me? Yes, there is a part of me that loves you. Just like there was a part of me that loved you on the night that I threw you under the bus. But we all have those elements of shame that we harbor. And I want to tell you, Jesus is coming for all of it. And he is leaving no stone unturned until he has it. And he will ask you and ask you and ask you. And he's not going to do it privately. He's going to do it in the presence of your friends and neighbors. Because he wants not just you to know, he wants everybody else to know that he is not ashamed of you. Oh, it's fine for me to know that Jesus isn't ashamed of me, right? I trust God, I just don't trust people. i got news for you. If I don't trust people, there's parts of me that don't trust God. That's the way we work. And the degree to which I begin to trust God increasingly, 
is the degree to which I, in my circle of people who are coming to find me, am willing to allow them to be Jesus' voice to come and ask me, do you love me? So that I can say in my grief, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I love you, help the part of me that doesn't. Because surely the evidence would suggest that I've got plenty of me that does not. Now, I'm, you know, uh, we say that um, one of the challenges about following Jesus uh, is that there are side effects. There are side effects. And Jesus warned us about this. You know, we, 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 we say that, you know, if you, um, if you give a medication to a patient and you uh, warn them of the set of side effects that they're going to have, even when they have them, they're far more likely to continue to take the medication than if you hadn't warned them of this. Jesus warns people all the time, following me is hard to do, right? He said, pick up your cross, right? Pick up the thing that is most likely to be used against you to humiliate you and do not be afraid of it because I am with you even unto the end of the age. I, but you know, I'm like, okay, you're with me. But then you like this disappearing act. You come and you go, and you go like, if you're really with me, then why are you not with me? Because that's our job. It is our job to be Jesus for each other every day, all day. This is what it means to be the community of faith. This is what it means for us to buffer. The side effects of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means for us to be the body of Jesus. Now, there's one other thing that I just want to point out that, that strikes me about this. You know, um, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And he's, you know, he's, he's doing so in the context, remember, he's doing so in the context of a meal. How many here like to eat? Right. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like I like to eat, but I don't like, I don't just want to eat for eating's sake. Like I like to eat around a table. Right? You like to eat with people who are eating with you, because a meal is a reason. It's an excuse to have joy in the presence of other people, right? There's a reason we would say that, like Jesus is like having this meal with his disciples, because. That way, they can concentrate on their fish. When he asks Peter, do you love me? You're like, oh, like, he, like he actually, he's, asking, he's going to ask that question. He's going to bring that in here, right here in front of us. Oh, the, the, the mackerel is really good. I'm just going to pay attention to the mackerel, right? <laughs> right? Like, you know, if I were going to be a cook, I'd like want to be like Jesus. Like, if Jesus were a cook, like, everything would be, just be fabulous. You know, you don't even need, there can never be too much butter, right? You don't even need that Julia Giles thing. Right? I want to suggest that Jesus is doing a couple things to set the stage for what we are called to do. And this is what our storyteller is trying to tell us. We're invited to a meal. And by that, I quite literally mean this. That if we are going to be doing this kind of work, we need to be doing it in contexts in which we are being fed. Literally. 
So what's it like to sit around a table and tell the truth about our stories? Like, think about like how that helps us do this. This is like a practical thing. If you're going to go home, if you're going to have groups of people that are going to like help us tell our stories effectively, let's do it around a meal. And then Jesus does this really strange thing. Like, he doesn't just ask Peter, "Do you love me?" And he says, "Do you love me?" Yes. Then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. This is all about vocation. This is all about Jesus drawing our attention, first of all, right into the center of the things that we are ashamed of. He's not going to flinch at this. He's drawing his attention, though, he's drawing Peter's attention to himself. I want, to, I want for us to speak honestly about what you did six weeks ago. And in this moment that you feel your worst, I want you to look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look, like, and we don't want to look at each other, right? We don't want to look at each other when we are feeling shame in the most potent moments. Are you with me? Right? The way shame tends to work, I was talking to someone earlier, like shame, first and foremost, is a neurophysiologic phenomenon. Shame can be experienced by human beings as early as 15 to 18 months of age, right? It's pre-verbal, right? It's pre-cognition. It's all about body language and tone of voice and eye contact and all those things that tend to disrupt the mind's activity, disconnecting neural networks from one another. And the only thing that I can do when I do this is I turn away from you. Like I physiologically react by turning away. And Jesus is drawing Peter's, do you love me? Look at me. Peter's like, stop it. We are called to gather each other's gazes to ourselves. And then say, feed my sheep. Jesus is unleashing Peter. Jesus is saying, dude, like, the whole shame thing, the whole, like, we're not going to pretend this didn't happen. We're not going to pretend this didn't. Like, it happened. In real time and space, I got the scars to prove it, and I'm not worried about it. I want you now to turn your attention, literally, away from where it's wandering, back to that night where that fire was taking place and you lied to that girl and those people and so And I want you to listen to me. And I want you to do what I'm calling you to do. Peter's a fisherman. Peter's not a preacher. Peter hasn't gone to seminary. Jesus is calling him into a brand new space that Peter has every reason to believe he is not equipped for six weeks ago being the largest piece of evidence. Like, how could I be the leader of a band of people when I'm the first to throw my leader under the bus? And isn't it interesting? What would it have been like for Peter had Jesus had this conversation with him privately? Like, if I'm Matthew, if I'm Andrew, I'm like, like Peter's a schmo. I'm going to know it. I'm going to know he's going to know it. I'm going to know that he knows that I know it. Like, I'm not going to lead that. I'm not going to follow that. But what's it like for us to witness Jesus reinstating his first lieutenant in front of us? What is it like? Because, like, you know, the thing is, like, what does the Scripture say? Like, they all scatter. Right? We, you know, like, we single out Peter, like, he's, he's the guy who's the really, like, he's, he's the problem, right? No, they were all problems. This is the thing. 
when we're in a group of people in which even one person is willing to be called forth, it creates freedom for everyone else to do the same. When Jesus does this with Peter, he's not just reinstating Peter, he's reinstating the whole gang. And in so doing, he's not just saying, we're okay. He is saying, here is your job to do. What are the vocational callings that you have? What are the vocational domains? Remember, we said vocation is not just the thing that you do for a living. Right? If, 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 you're, if you're a male, that means that you're somebody's son. That's a vocation. It could mean that you're somebody's husband. That could mean you could be a father. You could be a brother. You could be a friend, you could be a cyclist, you could be an engineer, you could be an artist, you could be a teacher, you could be a truck driver, you could be a range of, like, multiple vocational domains that you occupy. How many of us have domains of creativity that were born in the mind of God in Genesis 1 and 2 that we don't know, that we don't know that we have, because we don't have anybody calling us out and saying, do you love me? Don't learn to paint. Do you love me? Feel no shame as you lead us in worship. Do you love me? Walk into your marriage and do the work that needs to be done and don't be afraid. But don't also be afraid to talk about how hard it is. You with me? Like this, these are hard things to do because right after this, Jesus says, do you love me? Then let's unleash you to do what you're going to do. And then what does he say to him? Just so you know, right now, you're at a stage of life in which you're going to, you get to decide what you're going to do. But there's going to come a time when somebody else is going to lead you and tell you what to do in a way that you don't want to go. And the scripture says that Jesus said this to Peter to indicate to him in the way that he would die. Side effects. It's important to know that following Jesus, if you haven't said this, is hard to do. But we are still called, even in the middle of how hard this is, we are still called to not be afraid because our master is continually coming and going, coming and going, and with his voice calling forth those parts of us that are ashamed, healing them, unleashing them, only for us then as a community to be the light of salt in the world that we have been called to be. So the last thing. Um, uh, Jesus doesn't expect us to do anything that he won't do himself. Okay? doesn't expect us to do anything he won't do himself. And, uh, you know, in, in the Gospel of John, there are seven declarations of I am, which Jesus said, right? I'm the bread of life, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth of life. And I am, we have the last one. The last one is, I'm the vine. Seven. And we read these as words of comfort and joy. Would that be fair to say? Yeah? I like those words. It also happens to be words that got him killed. For Jesus, these are not just declarative statements of who he is. They are acts of vulnerability. 
They're declarations of this is who I am. Do you want me or not? And we at a certain time said, no, we don't. In the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, in the first two verses, we read this. Therefore, since we have before us such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles and distracts us, running the race with perseverance set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of God. Who will be your great cloud of witnesses with whom you will walk, with whom you will throw off the sin that so easily distracts your attention, that will encourage you to persevere, that will enable you to fix your eyes on Jesus and do what he did. Like Jesus does this in John 21. We are being called to see what he does and do what he does. Such that we will scorn shame. We are not afraid of it, we're not going to, but we're not going to pretend it doesn't happen. We're going to go find it like Jesus does in order to turn our attention to Jesus' voice, to his face, in the face and voice of those that are sitting across the room from us so that we may do what we're called to do. Who will be those people? How willing are we to step into this kind of life in which we with God co-create a world of goodness and beauty and joy, a world in which we are practicing for heaven that is surely coming. Thanks be to God. sing a song of response but while we do that we're also going to take an offering this being uh, Sunday morning together and I want to encourage you to think about it as a, a, a most physical way of expressing your trust in God as you are processing your own story as you're hearing what might be possible in Christ as Kurt has shared with us what might be possible in Christ of your healing and restoration and unleashing of your gifts and vocation and your deepening trust in God uh, that you would give him some token of your trust so you can even say to yourself as you perhaps give a gift I dare to <coughs> trust in you a little bit more I dare to believe that you are who you are um, and here's just a little token of my hope in you. So I want to ask, actually, this is a little bit of winging it. Justin, could you, and maybe Oscar, there are two baskets in the back there. We'll take the offering as we, let's stand up together as we sing this song.